Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? So it's that time of year again when everybody's sending out their holiday cards. But if you think your hand is cramping from all the cards you've had to address, just take a guess how many handwritten envelopes are addressed each year for the holiday card mailing from the White House. I I have no idea how many. Now, this number is a few years old. and I'm not sure how many the Trump White House is sending, but... The number I saw was 10,000. What? All handwritten. Now, I, I know you're super into calligraphy, Mango, always scribbling <laughs> over there, but even you have to admit that is a ton of handwriting. I mean, it makes my hand hurt just thinking about it. How do they pull it off? Well, I was wondering the same thing, but it turns out the White House employs three full-time calligraphers who create everything from invitations to menus to place cards at state dinners, official documents, the list goes on. And they're often written by hand. And not surprisingly, sometimes with the help of a computer, but it's still a ton of work. But even with three full-timers, like, that's a crazy amount of writing. It really is. But it's one of those jobs that you often don't stop to think about. But clearly it's a job that has to get done. And that's what got us thinking. You know, we obviously hear constantly about the president and everyone working on the political side, but how many non-political employees are working behind the scenes to keep everything running smoothly? And what do they all do? So that's what we're talking about today. Let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, wearing a very fancy top hat, that's our <laughs> friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. That's really, really fancy, don't you think, Super Mango? Super fancy. Well, today we're asking the question, who works in the White House? And of course, we're not talking about the obvious of the president and the other political employees of the government. We're talking about the non-political employees who really make the White House run. 
Yeah, so this episode was super fun to prepare for because I really had no idea how many people are working behind the scenes. And, of course, some are more visible than others. But, I mean, when you've got three full-time calligraphers, that's got to be a pretty big staff. Yeah, so we're, we're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of 350 people who keep the residence in operation. Now, around 100 of those are full-time and others are part-time. So we're talking everything from ushers to painters, florists to plumbers and plenty of other very interesting positions. And pretty much all of these people are paid for by the $13 million that's allocated <laughs> by Congress each year to keep the residents running smoothly. I mean, $13 million is insane. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. <laughs> yes, no kidding. But we should definitely talk about who oversees that budget. But why don't we save that for a little bit later and first talk about the people in charge of making sure the president's day goes smoothly. Did you just uh, did you just set up a teaser for later in the show, Mega? Like, <laughs> stay tuned. We're going to tell you who oversees the White House residential budget. I mean, you wish you could know now, but we're going to keep you hanging. Nicely done there. <laughs> Thank you. I, I've been studying up on how the best reality shows do it. But, oh, I see. Uh, but before the show, you were telling me about the people responsible for the president's whereabouts each day. And I really thought it was so fascinating. And would you mind if we started there? Yeah, that makes sense. And you're right. I did find this fascinating, too. Why don't we start with the director of Oval Office Operations? Now, this is the person who makes sure the president always has everything he needs while he's working in the White House. And he's always keeping a very close eye on the president's schedule. Yeah, I think you were mentioning an article about Obama's director. Uh, what was his name again? That was Brian Mosteller. Yeah, there was an interesting article about him from the Washington Post last year, and it described him as the, quote, anticipator in chief. And I thought that was a pretty interesting hmm. title. And the article said, quote, when Obama's in Washington, every move the president makes, every person he meets, and every meeting he attends has been carefully orchestrated by Mosteller. He knows where Obama likes his water glass placed on the table at meetings and whom he'd want to sit beside. He knows how he prefers the height of his lectern. He researches a head of state's favorite drink so that the president can offer it. He readies <laughs> Obama's remarks and sets them open to the first page wherever the president will be speaking. He tells Obama when a sock is bunched at his ankle or his shirt is wrinkled before an interview. I mean, it goes on and on here. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> I mean, I do feel like we could use that position in the studio. You know, sometimes oh, no I kidding. sit down in this chair to record and it's just a little too high for my preference or sometimes mm. a little too low. And I actually have to adjust it myself. <laughs> oh, my gosh, Mango. And also, I, I went and got this cup of water for myself, so I, I know <sighs> the struggles we deal with. It's a tough life here at How Stuff Works, but actually hearing this story, it reminds me of the time I was traveling to Detroit for some meetings. You know, this was back in our mental floss days, and as a little joke, the assistant in the Detroit office had one of those fancy ice buckets, you know, in the hotel rooms. It was placed right at the entrance of my hotel room with three Diet Mountain Dews just chilling in there, just <laughs> waiting on me. So I, mean, I wouldn't argue with that kind of thing happening everywhere I went. Yeah, but I mean, in the White House, that's a lot of job for one person. And everything from like sock bunching to lectern heights is kind of crazy. It does seem like sock bunching watching should be like <laughs> the dedicated job. But, uh, you know, you hear about Mosteller getting to his desk about an hour before the president would every morning. And then he'd unlock the door from the Rose Garden area. And that's where the president would enter every day. And then he would stay until after Obama was done in the Oval Office for the day. He'd lock up. And then he was the one who'd actually turn off the lights. How weird is that? <laughs> it's so weird. It's like he's a shopkeeper or something. 
Yeah, but you know, you're right. The hours were crazy. And can you imagine how stressful it is to make sure that every single minute of a president's day is scheduled most efficiently? So I heard you mention this job, and I think I'd been confusing it with the role that's called, like, uh, I, I think the body man. But, but that's not the same thing, right? No, I mean, you know, the director of the Oval Office operations and the body man would certainly be in close contact, but the body man, or perhaps more appropriately called the personal aide to the president, that's the person really at the president's side all day, keeping him on schedule, providing anything that the president needs. And the job often goes to a friend or a family member because they really have to be so close to the president. And is this the person you hear about having to actually keep the president on schedule and also having to interrupt the president to tell him to go to the next meeting or whatever? Yeah, it's definitely a position that requires an ability to handle these types of situations really delicately. You actually hear how tough a job it was for Chris Insko. He, he was the one that worked for President Clinton. Oh, yeah. I mean, Clinton was known for running along with every meeting and always being late and just like loving an audience in front of him. Right. I mean, I can't imagine how stressful that job was for an aide, but it was Ensco who would have to try and keep him as close to on schedule as possible. And then if things were off, he'd have to figure out how to quickly handle to, you know, transition to the next meeting and figuring all of that out. But, you know, he's also responsible for things like making sure the president has greeted everyone he needs to in a crowd. And sometimes if you watch video of a president at a gathering, you'll often see a body man pointing out people he needs to make sure and greet. It seems like almost every job in the White House has insane hours, but this one especially. Definitely. It's also another one where they have to be at work, ready to go before the president arrives, and they aren't done until after the president is done for the day, or at least done with meetings and appearances and you know, other than the Secret Service and sometimes the First Lady, the body man is often the only other person to join the president on long trips. I remember reading about Obama's body man, Reggie Love, and all the things he kept on him at all times, from hand sanitizer to energy bars to Nicorette. And that's got to be a fascinating job and a fascinating bag he's carrying around, but also <laughs> just a totally exhausting gig, right? Oh, yeah, I can't. I can't even imagine. Actually, here here's a quick fact I wanted to mention. Jocelyn noted this in some of her research that... Meriwether Lewis, you know, of Lewis and Clark fame, of course, actually served in this role for Thomas Jefferson before heading out on his big adventure. <laughs> and so it's actually not uncommon for aides in this role to go on to some pretty big things. That's crazy. I didn't know that. So we've probably talked about the two people who pay most close attention to, like, the president's whereabouts each day. Well, we can't forget the president's valets, of course. Valets? Well, you know, I said the president's body man is by his side tending to his every need, but that doesn't necessarily apply to every single need, you know, especially his personal needs, like packing for trips or getting a cup of coffee or an extra shirt if he spills something. I mean, these kinds of jobs fall on the president's two valets. Interestingly, they're actually military personnel who work in shifts and who are standing by at all times in case the president needs anything. And when the president is traveling by motorcade, you'll often find a valet in one of the other vehicles, you know, just ready with any sort of supplies the president might need. <laughs> That's so funny. You know, you know what's odd is like I, I, whenever I hear the term valet, I think it deals with cars and valet right. as like a butler because that's how the British pronounce it. But, right. uh, but I, I would say the president is pretty well covered if he needs anything between all these positions. Yeah, no kidding. But actually, it turns out not all presidents love being waited on constantly by valets. Apparently, George W. Bush wasn't a big fan of having them. According to uh, the book, The Residence, Inside the Private World of the White House, Bush wasn't aware he would even have valets when he first arrived at the White House. And then he says to his dad, these two men just introduced themselves and they said they're my valets. 
I don't need a valet. I don't want a valet. So <laughs> his dad just looked at him and replies, you'll get used to it. <laughs> it sounds like a dad thing to say, like, get used to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, I, I can see that it's like overwhelming at some point to be waited on constantly. But I, I mean, I'd be willing to give it a try. And, <laughs> you know, one thing we should talk about is that level of uh, security clearance that the people in these positions have to get. I mean, it's got a specific name, right? Yeah, it's a term I wasn't previously familiar with, but it's called top secret presidential proximity. And <laughs> it sounds really important, at least. And, and that's because it is. And the presidential proximity part means that these are people who are allowed to be very near the president and the first family without the Secret Service around. Yeah, I mean, I'd have to imagine it's a small number of people who get this level of clearance. Oh, for sure. And, and I don't know the exact number, but it's definitely not everybody in the White House. All right, well, let's shift gears a little here. I, I know we should do a rundown of the different types of jobs in the White House, but before we do, there was something you mentioned as we were doing our research, and I thought it was pretty interesting, and that's the couple of big positions that Jacqueline Kennedy added to the White House staff. Yeah, sure. So why don't we start with the position of executive chef, which Jackie Kennedy created back in 1961. And of course, there had obviously been cooks at the White House from the beginning, but she definitely took that position to this whole other level when she hired this French chef named René Verdon. And including Verdon, there have actually only been seven people to hold that position. So the current chef, who's Christeda Comerford, has been in the position for over a decade now. And she's not only the first woman to have served in the position, but is the first person of color to be hired as the White House executive chef. But, I mean, she obviously isn't the only one cooking at the White House, right? No, not even close. So the White House executive chef manages a team of, I, I think it's like seven chefs. And, and they, of course, cook every day for the first family. But they're also responsible for the huge dinners and the special events that take place at the White House. So we're talking more than 70,000 guests a year. Oh, wow. That's a ton of people. But you know something else I found really interesting is that the president's family pays for their own food. And as a side note, they actually pay for their own toiletries and other personal products as well. Really? I had no idea. I just thought this was one of the, the presidential perks. I mean, why, why would you run for president if you have to pay for your own toothpaste? <laughs> I know, and Listerine too, but uh, it, <laughs> it gets charged back to the president each month. But of course, having a chef and a team turn like those products and foods into delicious meals is pretty nice. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Well, I do assume that each chef kind of brings their own style to the kitchen, even though I'm sure they get certain requests from each family that lives there. Definitely. And in fact, there's a pretty funny story about Chef Verdon and uh, Lyndon Johnson. And this is after Lyndon Johnson moved into the White House and sadly after Kennedy was assassinated. But Johnson moves in and he's not a big fan of French cuisine. You know, he's more of a burgers and steak type of guy. And Verdun was not pleased with some of Johnson's requests. In fact, there's a quote from Verdun that he told Johnson, he said, You can eat at home what you want, but you do not serve barbecued spare ribs at a banquet with the ladies in white gloves. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty great. And, and I have to say, it doesn't sound like they were best buds. Yeah, not at all. And, you know, Johnson didn't love to be told what to do, and Verdun eventually just resigned. Wow. Well, actually, on a slightly different food-related topic, I was wondering how they ensure the food is always safe for the president to eat. Like, does he have tasters or something to make sure that it's all safe? Yeah, you know, I, I was curious about that, too. The president doesn't have a taster, you know, the way you think of old royalty. But before the food ever reaches the White House kitchen, it goes through this supply chain that's been heavily vetted by the Secret Service and also the FBI. And these suppliers are kept secret even from the guest chefs who come in for special events like state dinners. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense. Well, what about when the president's not at the White House, like if, if they're traveling somewhere? 
Well, they do have security that screens his food. And it's interesting because those responsible for feeding the president and his family vary depending on where he is. So most of the time when he's traveling, it falls on the Navy. But on Air Force One, it's the Air Force that figures out the food situation. And at Camp David, it's the Navy again. But back to the White House, screening even applies to things like snacks. Like they're so secretive about this that many times when the president decides he wants a certain kind of snack, the White House will often arrange to have it delivered to one of the homes of a resident staff member just so no one knows it's headed to the president. Isn't that crazy? And, and That is crazy. Y- you know, we, we were talking about security clearance earlier, and there was a great quote from the former executive chef, Walter Scheib, in this interview with the site Munchies. And he said, in terms of the few of us that are in the kitchen who have that clearance, if you think about it, we're not just around outside and next to the president. We're physically inside of him. In a way, you may be one of the singularly most trusted people in the whole country. Wow. I had honestly never thought about that. But I assume this is another one of those really long hour jobs as well. Definitely. So the executive chef often puts in 85 hours a week. Wow. All right. So the executive chef was one of the big jobs added by Jackie Kennedy. So what was the other one? Yeah, I'll I'll happily go into that. But why don't we take a quick break first? You and your cliffhangers today, Mango. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey guys, it's Steve Cavino from Cavino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. And with the new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck... You buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer. Check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness, kick back and spread some positivity into the world from smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports on stages and at the box office. Women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to women take the mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day.
Okay, before the break, we were talking about Jackie Kennedy creating the position of executive chef, and then you just left us hanging on what the other position was. Yeah, and I'm actually going to keep you hanging for just a little while longer while I set this up. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Think for a minute about how many important people visit the White House each year, and foreign dignitaries specifically. So it's actually kind of wild to read about how much thought goes into the messages the White House wants to send whenever a foreign leader arrives. So what do you mean? Well, when the White House is planning a state dinner, for example, there's always a balance of wanting to find a way to project American values, and that's everything from the food to the entertainment to the decor, while also finding a way to honor and welcome the guests. So I'm wondering, like, how do you think they can do that in a very visible way other than by, you know, offering the food served? Uh, I don't know, through by what they're wearing? Yeah, I mean, that's not a bad guess. And that's usually when the president travels abroad and uh, dresses in the style of the country. But here, one way to do that is through special flowers. So there's a great description of this from Columns, which is a publication. And here's how they described one big dinner. During a state dinner for German Chancellor Angela Merkel, Dowling chose a floral motif rendered in molecular designs in honor of Merkel's academic achievements and her doctorate in chemical physics. It featured her favorite color, yellow, and acknowledged her passion for cooking and baking with plum-colored flower and fruit designs. The chancellor is apparently known for making a famous plum cake. Oh, wow. That is so much thought going into that. So, so, so Jackie Kennedy had something to do with this or what? Yeah, and that name I mentioned in there, Dowling, that was Laura Dowling, who served as the chief floral designer under President Obama. And this was definitely a position that was created by Kennedy. The chief floral designer oversees the operations of the White House flower shop, and it's a ridiculously demanding job. So just think about how many events the White House hosts every single year. There are three full-time assistants, but they frequently bring in volunteers to help with the big projects. And several of the events, like state dinners and such, those actually take months to plan. And Dowling said her schedule often involved 100-hour weeks. Wow. Well, you know, there's definitely one thing I feel like I have a better understanding of after doing our research for this episode. And Yeah, that's the fact that pretty much anyone who works in a full-time capacity at the White House, they're working really long hours. And Mm -hmm. it's kind of amazing that they last as long as many of them do. I know you almost see these positions as more patriotic after you hear about them. But there have only been five chief floral designers since Kennedy created the position. And a couple of them were in that position for decades. Well, I would imagine this is another one where they they get to know the president's taste pretty well and maybe even factor that into the style of what they're doing. Definitely. So during the Obama administration, for example, you'd often see the private quarters with orange and blue flowers. And I didn't realize this earlier, but it kind of makes sense now. And that's because Obama loved the Chicago Bears. Oh, yeah, that does make sense. Again, something I could get used to if all (laughs) the flowers reflected my own taste. But all right, well, I think it's time for us to get back to the larger teams that really make the residents at the White House run. And it's also time for you to finally reveal the answer to that big teaser you set up earlier in the show. You know, the, the answer to who controls that $13 million budget for operating the residence there. Yeah, I think it's time. So are you ready? I think so. Play it on me. (laughs) Music, please. It, uh, that's the job of the chief usher. So the huh. title really doesn't accurately reflect the size of the job. And you could think of the chief usher as being like the general manager of a big hotel. But the main difference is there's just one family to please. Oh, that's interesting. All right. So the chief usher oversees what, like the whole resident staff? Yeah, that's everything from the team of ushers to the housekeeping staff to the butlers, both of which we should talk about as well. And the chefs, the florists and anyone else involved in running the residence. 
So all $13 million worth of costs falls under the chief usher. And since I've been talking a lot about Jackie Kennedy and her influence on the White House, I'm actually going to quote her. She described their chief usher, J.B. West, as the most powerful man in Washington next to the president. Oh, wow. I know. It's crazy, right? And so I I know you mentioned the book by uh, Kate Anderson Brower. It's called The Residence Inside the Private World of the White House. And in the book, she actually talks about West and all the tasks he does. It's really stunning. So he did everything from helping search the residence for Carolyn Kennedy's missing hamsters to, like, (laughs) trying to fix the water pressure for President Johnson because he was always complaining that the water pressure wasn't strong enough. (laughs) That's pretty crazy. So so what about all the other ushers under the chief? What, What do they do? Well, in addition to seeing after the needs of the first family, they also prepared the White House for, you know, the over 7,000 tourists that come in every single week. And that's no small task. But back to the first family side, an usher is always on duty when the president's awake. So until he goes to sleep at night, there's one right there, which often means being on duty late into the night. And each night, one of the ushers will actually deliver the president's briefing book. This is the briefing put together by the president's West Wing staff that brings him up to speed for the next day. All right. Well, you should also talk about the preparation that goes into the presidential transition and and what the ushers do with that. Yeah, it's actually wild how early the chief usher and their staff begin preparing for the next first family. It starts well before the election. They often begin pulling together information about the top candidates during the primary season, just so they can be as prepared as they can, like before someone's elected and eventually moves in. Wow, that's pretty fascinating. You know, one of the things I was thinking about is how many people are around the president and his family and and other officials too, you know, like when they're having these very private or confidential conversations and I guess they sometimes just have to kind of disappear into the background when all that's going on. Yeah, and this is the case with two other sets of employees, the housekeeping staff, which is about 20, and the six full-time butlers. So Anderson and Brower has this really interesting section on the housekeeping crew having to work around the first family, and here's how she describes it after a conversation with Christine Limerick, who managed the housekeeping staff for about 30 years. Limerick describes a delicate dance the maids must do as they try not to disturb the first family. If they walk in the room, they look at you and say, you can finish, you don't have to leave. If they tell you to stay, you do what you need to do, but you have an ability to let what's going on around you just go over your head. Even if the first family wanted time alone, the residence workers would often leave one room and go to work in an adjoining chamber. Limerick said the maids follow the same code as the butlers. They see, but they don't see. They hear, but they don't hear. They don't speak to members of the first family or their guests unless spoken to, and they never approach them with personal requests. Ah, oh, that's really interesting. And and then you mentioned the butler. So do they mainly serve the meals, and or is that what they do? Yeah, so whether it's the fancy state dinners or just everyday meals for the first family, these are served by the butlers. They also get snacks for the family and prepare food in the off hours if the chef staff isn't on duty. Though apparently Michelle Obama didn't want her daughters to get too used to being waited on, so she was pretty careful about how much she would allow them to serve Sasha and Malia. Yeah, I can definitely see how that might be a concern with kids. All right, well, there's there's one other group I think we should talk about, but before we do that, let's take a quick break. All right, Mango, it's quiz time. I know we've been talking about people that work at the White House, so you've put together a really fun quiz for us today. And we are joined by a couple of our friends here who've actually been on the show, I think, three or four times now, if I'm not mistaken. We've got Ben Bolin and Noel Brown, the co-host of Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, Mm -hmm. but also the host of a brand new show here 
at How Stuff Works called Ridiculous History. Welcome, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks for, for having, having us. us. We're actually boned up on this quiz thing because we just introduced a segment on Ridiculous History where our nemesis, Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. <laughs> <laughs> the quizster, the quizster <laughs> to torture and berate us with ridiculous quizzes. So wow. if you're into this kind of quiz action, mm-hmm. you should check out the show. Tune yes. in. Check us out. Well, we want to hear a little bit more about it. Tell us how what what's Ridiculous History all about. We love the show, but we want our listeners to know about it. Oh, gosh. Thank you so much. Well, uh, so history is riddled with things that are beautiful, brutal, and at times uh, ridiculous. So in our show that comes out twice a week, Noel and I look at little known episodes throughout the stories of human civilization, like... um, Little fun nuggets. Like, uh, did you know that there were a class of Russian hipsters that bootlegged music by etching them into discarded X-ray films? (laughs) Or that uh, there is a reason British lawyers insisted upon wearing those anachronistic wigs. The perukes. The perukes. I loved that episode, by the way. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, we learn stuff every time we do one of these. And part of the fun is that we're we're not experts. You know, we're mm-hmm. we're we're pretty we're we're pals and mm-hmm. we get a kick out of like reading up on this stuff and discussing it. But we always learn something every time we do one and we kind of tend to like to surprise each other, which makes it fun mm-hmm. for, for us. We hope it makes it fun for people listening. But. Do you uh I, I know you guys are into music. Do you uh do you have any of that bone music? Like any of those records? We found some, yeah. Really? We did find some. You can you can find some online. You can actually buy some of the original recordings. We do have to say, however, that they they were made on these uh, these discarded X-ray film, and although they are functional, the quality does show. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And we had um, at the time uh, super producer Alex, who, speaking of music, did an amazing job at composing the uh, the intro music, which mm-hmm. we get a lot of uh, email about. Um, he found some examples and kind of strung a few together into kind of like a a uh, bone music mixtape that happens at the end of the episode. So you can hear some very <laughs> oh, that's super cool. Yeah, yeah. a lot of stuff like weird, like instrumental jazz, and then mm-hmm. there's like Elvis, anything that you mm-hmm. could think of that would have been popular, like and. Uh, Illegal, right? In <laughs> Soviet <laughs> Russia, yeah. in in uh, uh, opposition to what the USSR saw as their ideological values. So you're listening to very dangerous music Ooh. at the time. <laughs> looks it because this stuff is creepy looking. It's like it's like got a cigarette burn that makes the hole where you put it on the turntable, mm-hmm. and the rest of it's just kind of cut out with scissors. So it's got these real rough edges, and typically it's like a, a sternum or, or like maybe a broken like a bone hand. or a partial skull. <laughs> yeah, they're really creepy looking. Super metal, super evocative, super like, metal. A, like a nine inch nails t-shirt mm-hmm. or something. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Well, speaking of dangerous though. Oh, yeah. I think it's time to put you guys to the test. Now, again, listeners, I hope you will check out Ridiculous History. It is an awesome new show here from How Stuff Works. But we've got a quiz to get to. Mango, what is our quiz today? It's called That Other White House Quiz. That Oh, that's a good name. All mm. right. So there are dozens of knockoff White Houses scattered around the world. So this quiz, obviously, is to locate just a few of them. So we're going to give you a White House and a clue, and you just have to tell us where it is. Now, we're going to have you guys face off. A fact that we learned earlier is that Ben loves cows, so Ben is going to <laughs> moo when he's ready to answer. Mm-hmm. And Noel, I don't know if you love birds, but you get to... No, I, in fact, am, am terrified of birds. Oh, you're terrified I of birds. I am. That is, yes. my, that is a phobia of well, mine. put that fear to use. That's I'm right. Pointing. This is going to be a way for you to kind of take ownership of your ornophobia. I think you were telling me it's called. Okay. Undiagnosed. Yes. Yeah, well, this is, this is going to be good for you, man. Okay. I'm ready. So I could call? You could call. Ben, you move. Okay, here we go. Question number one. The most famous upside-down White House in the world features an upside-down briefing room, an upside-down oval office, 
both of which are manned by animatronic robots. But if you want to go there, you'll have to go to the state known as America's Dairyland. Come here! All right, uh, Noel, what state are we talking about? Wisconsin? Mm-hmm. Well done. All right. Tell me more about this upside-down White House. It's actually one of uh, at least three upside-down White Houses, though the others are actually uh, right-side up when you walk through the doors, and they mm-hmm. mostly have arcades inside. <laughs> wow, a little bonus. <laughs> to what go. end? I'm confused about this. Is this like, just like a bizarro White House? Well, yeah, it, it it's called like the Top Secret White House, and it's, uh, it's yeah, just in the Dells of Wisconsin. Sounds like there's so many uh, different White Houses, perhaps, that you have to find an angle? <laughs> I think. I think you need an angle. Yeah, the angle's 180 degrees. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> All right, question number two. Not far from the actual White House, a Vietnamese immigrant built himself a replica White House, though he put it up for sale once he was feeling empty nest syndrome. What state, also known as the birthplace of presidents, is this house located in? Moo. Uh, I'm going to get this one wrong with grace and aplomb. Is it Maryland? It's not Maryland. He is going to get this one wrong. I'll take a steal. Mm-hmm. Nebraska. Just completely, <laughs> complete shot in the dark. Not far from the actual White House. So our uh, our 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 host here is struggling a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's actually in Virginia. Oh, so, that was my other guess. Yeah. yeah, so that was his other guess. You How guys much? did not specify U.S. presidents, though. Oh, that's a good, that's a, that's a good, because you totally would have nailed it otherwise. But how many U.S. presidents were born in the state of Virginia? Eight, apparently. Eight. Yeah. All right, here we Seems go. Low. Redemption here. Here we go. Number three. White House replicas built mostly out of tiny Danish bricks are housed at this theme park with locations in Florida and California. Oh, I mean, <laughs> moo! Oh, dang it! I got the <laughs> the birds, the, the birds scared him so badly that a boop came out instead. <laughs> uh, Disney. No, it is not. All right, a boop. You want to take another uh, shot at this? Man. Tiny Danish bricks. Tiny Danish bricks. Oh, go for it again. He's not ready. I'm all. I was thrown by my my bird phobia. <laughs> just, uh, is it is it uh, is it Lego related? Oh, is it yes. Legoland? It is Legoland. Yes. <laughs> and can I say the Legoland in Atlanta? Entirely underwhelming. It's, <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's in a mall, and mm-hmm. it's, it's very small. It's a nice mall, though. It's a good mall. <laughs> Not I'm still not recovered from the boop. a boob. <laughs> that was terrific. Okay, guys, it mm. is one to one. Okay, I know we're laughing here, but things mm-hmm. are pretty tight. All right, there's two questions left. One to one. Question number four: The replica White House in this country is now being used as a school. You might know the country better for having the third busiest McDonald's in the world, or for its capital of. Kiev. Moo! All right, let's hear Ukraine. it. Ukraine. It is Ukraine. Ah, wow. All... all right, question number five. I think we have two for Ben, one mm-hmm. for Noel. Is that right? Okay, here we go. Last question. This is your chance. This one's actually a two-pointer, Noel. Oh, so you okay, have the okay. chance right. for the win. I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready. A real estate mogul and Iranian immigrant built himself a three-fourth scale model of the White House with shrubbery that reads, God loves you in the front lawn. What city also home to, you ready? The CNN Center, the Coca-Cola. Oh, what do you think, Mango? <laughs> well, I, think we, I think I heard a bird sound. I think first. I heard a bird sound. Let's it's, hear it. It's Atlanta. It is yeah. Atlanta, Georgia. Wow. I, no, wait. 
Why is it a three-fourth scale? You've you've built 75% <laughs> in size of the White House. Why would you just not go all maybe, the way? Maybe he didn't he have used the money. It, yeah, maybe he used, uh, he used that extra uh, 25% to make a, uh, a, a one-fourth size replica of something else. <laughs> I, could. I like that. I like That's that. That's good fact, math. I think you get a bonus point for that one, which I think brings these guys three to three. I do want to thank again Ben and Noel, the host of the awesome Ridiculous History, for joining You're us just today. Leave it at a tie. I mean, we're hopefully pretty... we'll have you back. Yeah, yeah. Thank you can we so at least much. Rochambeau for it? <laughs> Let's do it. Right, it's ready? up to you guys. All right, one, one two, two, three, three shoot. shoot. We got. Uh, he crushed me. I'm crushed. Well done, rock, right. speak, scissors. I should have stuck with the tie. <laughs> we can stick it as a tie. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us on, guys. We are huge fans of Part Time Genius. Big time. We want to do a little like a crossover uh, Rochambeau event with all <laughs> four of us, where we like do a podcast shared topic. Let's do it. Ridiculous history and Part Time Genius. All right, get ready for that, guys. But thank you, guys, for coming on. Across America, BP supports more than two hundred seventy-five thousand jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio, and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com/slash/investing-in-America. What up, everyone? It's Lunchbox from the Bobby Bone Show, and I'm here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get you anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, peanut butter M&M's, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast. So grab a handful of that creamy deliciousness. Kick back and spread some positivity into the world. From smashing glass ceilings to breaking records in sports, on stages, and at the box office, women are crushing it in every way imaginable. And with peanut butter M&Ms by your side, relax and keep listening to Women Take the Mic podcasts as you dance your way through inspiring stories, share laughs, and savor the deliciousness of peanut butter M&Ms and the unstoppable force of women. Happy International Women's Day. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. So before the break, Will, you were saying that there was one more group of non-political employees at the White House that you wanted to talk about. 
Yeah, and in fact, they might actually be the biggest group, and that's the Uniform Division of the Secret Service. Now, you know, we're all pretty familiar with the Secret Service members who protect the president and the first family, but when it comes to making sure that the White House as a whole is secure, that job falls on a division of the Secret Service known as the Uniform Division. This is a police force of about 1,300 officers. 1,300 is so many more than I thought would be there. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're the ones that come face to face with the public. You know, they screen the visitors to the White House. They're tasked with keeping bad people from getting anywhere near not only the president, but even the special agents who are around the president. And do they only protect the White House? That's a good question. But but no, they're also responsible for protecting the vice president's residence as well as the Treasury building and then all the foreign diplomatic missions and embassies that are scattered throughout D.C., and there are several specialized units as well, from the K-9 unit to the counter-sniper team, the motorcade support unit, the emergency response team, and several others as well. Well, I mean, this is clearly an incredibly important division. And now that I know just how many locations they keep secure, it does make sense there'd be, you know, well over a thousand of them. Right. But speaking of keeping the White House secure, did you wonder before researching for this episode how difficult it is to get hired by the White House? Oh, definitely. And it doesn't appear that you're going to find White House jobs just posted on like monster.com or anything, because <laughs> I checked. But in most cases, people get hired because they had a friend or a family member recommend them. And some families have had several members work in the White House. But yeah, for the most part, there's a much greater comfort when somebody already on the inside can vouch for a potential new hire. And then, of course, after that, they're heavily vetted from there. Sure, that's pretty interesting. Well, I feel like we've learned a ton about several of the key behind-the-scene jobs at the White House, but I've saved a couple of them because you know what time it is. It's fact-off time. So I think it's interesting to look back at jobs that might have been necessary in the past but aren't really needed anymore. And one of those jobs is theater projectionist. So FDR had a movie theater built in the White House in the 40s, and a projectionist was later hired to be on call around the clock, you know, in case a member of the first family wanted to watch a movie at 3 a.m. And one of the White House projectionists, Paul Fisher, worked there for over 30 years until 1986, and he served seven presidents. He actually kept a log of the over 5,000 movies he showed in that time. Oh, wow. It would actually be really interesting to see what movies were shown to which presidents, but... Mm -hmm. All right, well, one of the roles you don't hear about much now but must have been very interesting is that of a nanny for the first family. And just to show how close those nannies could be to the families, and this one is heartbreaking, but Maud Shaw, the Kennedy's British nanny, she was apparently the one who told Caroline and John Jr. about their father's assassination. Oh, that is heartbreaking. So I actually had a fact about a White House nanny as well. And we've referenced the story before, I think, but it's really interesting. So a young African-American woman named Mary Prince became the nanny to Jimmy Carter's daughter, Amy, while also serving prison term for murder. And at the time, Carter was governor of Georgia and Prince was assigned to work at the governor's mansion. She became really close to the family. And when he was elected president, Rosalind Carter secured parole for Prince, whom she believed was wrongly convicted, to come join them in the White House and continue as Amy's nanny. President Carter actually served as her parole officer, and Prince later received a full pardon from the state, not from Carter. Huh. Well, you talked earlier about the executive chef, but we didn't talk about the White House executive pastry chef. So this is a <laughs> position that was made permanent back in 1979, but they get to work on some pretty big projects. 
like the 475-pound dark chocolate-covered gingerbread house that was a big part of the holiday decorations overseen by Michelle Obama one year. (laughs) I love that there's a 475-pound gingerbread house. It's amazing. That's a big one. (laughs) Yeah. So the White House is such an old and big place that there's both a paint shop with two full-time painters who are just, like, constantly touching up and repainting the walls and a carpenter shop where the carpenters build furniture and work on other necessary projects. I mean, it really just is amazing how many people are constantly working behind Mm -hmm. the scenes there. But speaking of carpenters, I don't know if you meant to do this, but I appreciate the setup here, Mango, because (laughs) one White House carpenter, his name is Charlie Brantz, he actually transitioned into a very different job in 2009. And this is when he brought in some bees from hives that he looked after at home. Now, to be clear, he was asked to do this. He didn't just bring (laughs) in a bunch of bees to the White House. But you remember Michelle Obama installed her famous vegetable garden in the South Lawn that year. And... And the White House chef wanted a couple of beehives. So Brantz provided the bees and ended up becoming the White House beekeeper, the first of these. And he retired as a carpenter, but continued taking care of the bees. I mean, isn't that, you know, a sweet story? (laughs) Well, it is. But anyone bold enough to tell a good story and then follow it with a pun like that deserves a trophy. So I think uh, you get the trophy for today's fact off. Uh, Thank you very much, and thanks for listening today. I do want to thank Jocelyn Sears for the great research for today's episode, and also the terrific book by Kate Anderson Brower, The Residents. If you guys have any facts about uh, the White House or anything related to presidents that you feel like we should know, we'd love to hear from you. You can always email us, parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com, or call us on our 24-7 fact hotline, 1-844-PT-GENIUS, or, as always, you can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. But thanks for listening. again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exact producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eve Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, At these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Hyatt Ziva Riviera Cancun at CheapCaribbean.com. 
That's CheapCaribbean.com. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane, back to reality. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply.